You are listening to the Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. We are your hosts. I am Hank. And here's a man who cares so much about health and safety that he wears rubber gloves while having sex. It's I, Alexander Nash. You broke my catapult. You're going to pay for that. I killed your puppy and I broke your catapult. And then I have no joke. Never mind. What's up? What's going on? It's Video Nasties, A through Z with Death by DVD. I have nothing funny to say at all. One of the movies we're talking about tonight sucks a lot, and one of them's really okay. It's pretty good. It's all right. You're so wrong. It's better than all right. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Amazing. It's my, one of my favorite movies on the Video Nasties list, by far. I, it, honestly, it, it's got to be like the top five best movies on the Video Nasties list, to be honest. It's a pretty quality movie. Um... I'm just well, if you no look fun. at the overall video nasties list, all sections, all three sections, like good movies are few and far between. There's a lot of trash on the video nasties list. Just a lot of really cheapskate trying to make a quick buck films. And some of them you can get some pleasure out of. And a lot of them, though, it's just like, what the fuck is this? We have one of those tonight, actually. It's something similar to, I think, what I'm I'm beginning to call Axe syndrome there are a lot and that's the very first one that you're going to encounter if you alphabetically want to go through the video nasties list the very very first bump of the road is a movie called axe aka lisa lisa and there's nothing particularly wrong with the movie and uh, what we're going to get into tonight a movie called expose aka house on straw hill it's it's got two or three other titles also there's nothing wrong with it it's just so unusually boring. Uh, uh, something that is titled as an exploitation film or even a porn or a sex film, it's just so goddamn motherfucking boring. And that is uh, Axe Syndrome, as I call it. Not a bad movie, just, oh, wow. Nothing happens, does it? Not one thing's gonna happen, okay. Well, before we get into Expose, we'll get into our first film, a movie starring a what, 20, 21-year-old Clint Howard looking like he's about 45, a little movie called Evil Speak. A movie that Clint Howard had to buy his own hairpiece for. <laughs> well, 
if you go back to the um, original Star Trek series and you see that Clint Howard episode when he's like a small child, maybe seven, eight years old, and you know how kids grow up. And, I wonder what this kid's going to grow up to look like. I wonder if he's going to end up being handsome or she's going to be beautiful. And Clint Howard just got bigger, kept the same face, kept the same head, and just got, he looks like a giant baby. You know, I will say when it comes down to Clint Howard, though, I think any working actor right now has to to look at him and, and see some amazing credentials because he began uh, his, his acting career, I believe, at two years old, did all the Star Trek stuff and, and has continued to this day to work. And everyone knows his brother. His father was a, a powerhouse in the early years of Western and early studio television Working from two years old continuously to now, it, the the things that he knows, just if he could sit down and actually have the money his brother does, I think we would probably get Evil Speak 2. <laughs> A really huge produced Evil Speak 2. But I, I like Clint Howard. I think he's an underdog when it comes to horror, and he's gotten boxed into it. Funnily, a, a true story here, when I was a teenager... For some reason, I thought he was a you know a homicidal killer and had been locked up and had put in, in prison. And it's that whole Seinfeld episode where Kramer goes out to L.A. and it turns out that Clint Howard was the serial killer. I just smoked a lot of weed when I was 16 and kind of confused that with reality. <laughs> so you confuse Seinfeld for real life. I'm sure it happens a lot. It, I can't be the only person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, somebody else has... Not just that scenario, but I mean, Seinfeld in general, there's got to be somebody else that... I remember when I went fishing for a marble rye. That's real life. And remember our old co-host, the Bubble Boy? That was real, right? He existed. I don't even remember that shit. The Moops? You don't remember the Moops? has nothing to do with, with evil speak at all, but here's our introduction. Welcome to Death by <laughs> DVD. Yeah. All right, bubble boy. Let's just play. Who invaded Spain in the 8th century? That's a joke. The Moors. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's the Moops. The correct answer is the Moops. Moops? Let me see that. That's not... Moops, you jerk. It's Moors. It's a misprint. I'm sorry, the card says Moops. Well, Evil Speak in itself is, for the most part, an excellent film. I think it has a dynamic opening with the, the, the choral singing of the very melodic, like, satanic chant music. Richard Mull in a fucking badass cloak and robe um, looking like Anton LaVey. And... It, it really like works you into you're going to get into some really crazy witchy shit that's getting ready to happen and it's very epic and then after that dynamic opening this is where people fall off on evil speak and I completely understand because I myself fall off on evil speak because we have a bit of a drag in story because we are introduced to Stanley Cooper Smith played by Clint Howard who is a um, old man who is at a military school yeah, okay, he's supposed to be, like, 15, even though, again, 45-looking. He's literally, like, 21, 22 when he's filming this also. <laughs> he had I mean... to buy his own toupee, Hank. <laughs> That's got to be a sentiment to the to the, the state of this movie, which, uh, God, I think it was $1.3 million, and if you were to do something like Evil Speak now, I'm sure it'd be 20, 30 million. Well, especially if film and they're actually like trying to do in-camera effects. Well, one thing I will say for the defense of this movie is I think it looks 
like at least a five million dollar movie. It looks a lot cleaner, even blown up. I have a, a, a fancy schmancy Blu-ray of this, and it looks really, really nice even for that. And I think the Blu-ray really is just a port. It's from '88 films. I think it's just a port of the old DVD. It still looks nice. Uh, there's something. Almost like a, a John Hughes feeling, dare I say, to something like Evil Speak. It's just the colors, the quality, the warmth. I think it portrays, uh, it it, it portrays more of a summer camp feeling than a military Not school. That, but like outside, you have the military school, which is you know that's a location, but you have the the set of the basement that Cooper Smith basically as a punishment is relegated to clean up, and it's a really nice done set with a lot of um. Really I don't think I don't. I, I don't... I don't think that was a set. I think all of that was actually a real church in, um, it's not Compton. I think it was Watts, the city of Watts in um, California. And it was a church that had been um, condemned and they were going to demo it. And they kind of unfortunate story when it comes down to all those church scenes. Apparently the... No, the church itself. I'm talking about the basement. Yeah, I, I thought the basement actually was, was, was part it, of the church. Was actually in the church? Yeah, I thought all that was, was all connected. I, that the, uh, the It the, might be. I'm not sure. I'm wrong all the time, so don't. <laughs> I'm wrong a good portion of the time too. So, <laughs> but anyway, just just talking about when you get to the the basement um set or location, regardless, it's really nicely lit. It's really nicely photographed. Um, and it really gives a mood to the film, which is necessary because, it, as I was saying before, there's a, a bit of a drag in this film because what we ultimately have for a story here is a bully kid turns to a book he finds in this condemned basement um, of satanic spells that he doesn't know how to translate. So he gets his like his Apple II, his shit little computer to translate this book um, just as kind of a like a lark. And he slowly falls into the grip of um, demonic possession, like, you know, Satanism. You know, computers were so young at this time period. No one on set actually knew how to even get the Apple turned on. But one of the fun facts that I don't know, I think is humorous about this is, you know, I grew up in an era, I know you did also, uh, you remember DOS, you remember early computers, they ended up using a playback monitor for the screen, because nothing would actually show up on the Apple, so you've got this huge, goofy playback monitor, and then this tiny little Apple computer, and this is, you know, it's so new, it's so shocking, no one even really knew what outside of playing Galaga how to use a computer not only that the actual computer generated effects on the computer are just animations because they didn't really have the power to actually like come up with graphics for the computer and it for a computer to actually run those graphics so they had to just animate all that stuff but it's all very cool shit. I mean, in a retro 80s sort of vibe, like in an Atari sort of way. Even a retro 80s sort of vibe. It's 2021 and that pentacle with Esteban popping up over and over again. It's still pretty cool. Like, <laughs> it's really effective when you can go back and watch it and still enjoy something, I think, because it's so dated that you can look at computers and you can look at what we have now and how technology is and really what even the title of this movie comes from Evil Speak is a play on computer speak. That everything really comes from uh, the rewrite of the script. That the the original story was more of a Carrie knockoff by uh, Joe Garofalo. And Eric Weston did maybe nine or ten rewrites until they finally got to what we, we see on screen, what was shot. And it's, it's still really, you can play this off as a nerdy male version of Carrie. But the original idea, the original story, I think, was much more supernatural-based, and you have this addition of the computer coming in and just being able to use technology uh, just as, like, iPhones are used in films now or, you know, uh, found footage movies shot on iPhones and things like that. 
it's a really early concept, I think, and I think it's really fun that the movie plays its entire point off of Clint Howard's character using the computer. Every evil thing, every bad thing that happens is because of the computer. To update kind of a pretty standard satanic story with the use of the computer makes it gives it a little spice, makes it a little bit more interesting. But it's not really interesting enough to overcome the lackluster story and plotting of this bullying narrative that's going on because it really does drag because the there's a few deaths throughout the film, but I mean it takes a while to get through them and it doesn't really build its characters very well at times, but those little nuggets, those little breadcrumbs that they do give you are enough to like sell you through to the end. Like you do have RG Armstrong having his head twisted off. That's okay. That's a kind of interesting thing. Maybe not so gory, but it's at least there. And then you have the, uh, the secretary of the, uh, the Dean or the major or whatever. It's a military school um, where she eventually gets attacked by satanic demon pigs, which is a, Far, that's a very edited scene. I think it's I love fully intact now on the DVDs, but I, I think like even that was especially one of the things that added to the the video nasties list because of that scene specifically of her because it's very gruesome at times. The pigs are a concept that I think is really ignored, and I think a problem when it comes down to evil speak is there. It, it feels like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, despite there only being two writers credited for this. But as we go through the movie and as we begin to explore how awful Stanley Cooper Smith's life is. We have this like evil kind of pedophile priest situation where he gets spanked. And then we've got the headmaster's assistant who steals the book from him. And none of these things really go anywhere. We've got the representation of evil first showing up in the movie with these pigs, these awful boars that I guess are being kept somewhere on the premise of this military school. Who, who knows why there's no reason or point for it. And then these None of these things amount to anything later. The only reason they've been introduced is sort of like that, uh, the gun rule. If a gun is shown in a film, it's going to be used at some point. So we know these pigs are going to, I guess, be the evil. They're Richard Mull's evil pigs. All right. I, they're Chekhov's pigs. I'm questioning too much. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're there for a little bit of flavor, and they do, like, they will come back later in the film, but I mean, them being on the school grounds is never particularly explained other than we have a farm department. I don't know. It's pretty irrelevant to the overall story. If you'd like any fun facts for this movie, no stunt shit was used. It's real pig shit that uh, Clint Howard had to roll in. There's your fun fact from IMDb. No stunt shit. It's all real. Every time I've shown people this movie in the past, I always have to tell them, hang in there because we're getting through all the, this plot stuff. And it's just like, okay, Hey man, this is, it's a little bit boring. Dude, just hang in there. It's going to pay off. It's going to pay off. Just trust me. And it takes, I mean, it's a good hour of this, like egging people on of like, it's going to pay off. Trust me. Um, and then when we get to the ultimate finale where, um, Cooper Smith's dog is viciously murdered, which is a big scene of contention for a lot of people because just to interrupt you, animals, uh, you know, I think really when and I, I feel the same way that you do trying to get people to watch this movie. I think when you get to the point where the dog is introduced, where you've got uh, Luca Brasi, who sleeps with the fishes, gives the dog to Clint Howard, you know, at that moment, I think. Anyone that knows horror, knows exploitation, is a fan of horror, knows, well, they're going to fucking kill the dog. Okay. 
I, I don't know if I want to watch anymore because nothing really has happened. And, you know, even to take it down to a high school vulgar level, you don't have tits. You don't have any fucking. You don't have anything. Uh, you don't even have good drug use. You don't have heavy metal. All the, the quintessential things. They smoked a joint. Well, yeah, you've got, well, they, it's not even a fun scene of smoking a joint, though. <laughs> they, they fuck with Clint Howard. They make him feel like shit while they smoke the joint. Nothing good or positive happens. So all the traditional things, like when you're watching a Jason movie. You're positive, I guess. Well, you know, and... I think that's the problem. You know, the dog's going to die. But like, if you're watching a Jason Voorhees movie and people are fucking and there's nudity and there's drug use, it, it kind of builds and you're allowed to know, well, at least something's going to happen. And in this situation, it's just how much can you take? How much shitting on Stanley Cooper Smith can you take until you turn against the other characters and like the lead villain is played uh, by Don Stark plays a guy named Bubba Caldwell you might know the name Don Stark from that 70s show it's Donna Pinciotti's father he's just a, a nameless classless douchebag we don't know why he's picking on Stanley we don't know why any of them well, are against him look at Clint Howard's face you know why they're picking on <laughs> I mean you've got you've, he is a goofy looking guy but at the same time like we're just introduced during a soccer game and then they're just incessant douchebags till finally they kill his dog and I think that you've got the end of the movie which is a, a very great display of, of of violence and cool graphic effects but the most disturbing and upsetting thing is all these chads who probably pay eighty dollars for a fucking gram are screaming, kill, 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 and they fucking stab a puppy. I mean, they, they all well, kind of deserve the puppy to die. In this instance, uh, using your carry um, metaphor, is it's William Cat. It's William Cat as a dog. It's the one good thing that's happened to this character the entire film, and it is the last straw because up to this point, he's accepting this bullying fairly well. He because he's getting the shit kicked out of the entire movie, and. He's been doing that his whole time at this school, so we need something to push him finally over the edge to, as the film says, get the consecrated host, the human blood that he needs to raise Esteban. Well, you've got all this stuff driving the point, but even while he's being bullied, you have all these weird like subplots. You've got the weird thing with him being spanked and all of his punishment, but there's a scene where Don Stark and all of his friends take uh, Stanley Coopersmith's hat and they throw it out of a window and the priest comes along, and everyone has to have their hat, I guess, when they come to attention, because these are really important things when it comes to being in the military. You have to have a hat. No hat cannot serve. No freedom. Uh, hat, no freedom. That's how things work. He doesn't have his hat, and he doesn't rat on them. He doesn't say, they were just beating the fuck out of me, and they threw my hat out of the window, they were picking on me. He stands up to it, and you've got, like, this sense with everyone's, I don't know, juxtaposition. Juxta juxtaposition you've got this sense with everyone's juxtaposition as characters that they're sympathetic with him and that okay he's not a snitch that we're going to be friends with him and they immediately go kill his fucking puppy and it it's it's not bad editing it's just bad storytelling at this point because any sense as to why they were doing this i mean okay he's a goofy looking guy but that even makes me feel bad as an audience member even doing this show like i just don't want to say he's picked on because he's goofy looking but that's what kind of the point of the movie that's is what, i mean you can't go too far into especially in the 80s they didn't uh, 80s horror they didn't go really far into a lot of character development i mean with the time that they had they could have but they have decided to just mount um, 
this mountain of crimes against these bullies so you can ultimately feel good about what happens to them. And boy, goddamn, does it feel fucking good. I can't disagree because it really works. I mean, at the end of the day, when you finish this movie, I I like it a little bit more than Carrie. I think justice was served. And because Carrie's a little bland in the finale. I mean, it's got some it's got some moves, but this like it, the dividends pay off like measurably. But you know what the issue with Carrie though is what De Palma did was leave a question. He he made you wonder if this was the right thing to do, which you know you've got the similarity with like Last House on the Left, and we did that recently where we were talking about the the importance of. That over the remake, how the remake just kind of shows you, eh, you know, who cares? With Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, the question was, who is the real cannibals? Who's the real monsters? And when you have a situation like this and what's going on with Clint Howard, I, and no one's good. They're all monsters. And you've got that kind of tacky ending, which I, I like. I've always loved the ending of this movie, the little words letting you know that he's been catatonic and then the computer flashing at you that, one day he's going to come back. But unlike Carrie, you you don't really care. Sure, they were dicks, but you you were left with that, well, was it right to do this? That's yes. not, well, that's, yeah, exactly. You shouldn't have left Carrie that way. And like the Stephen King story, the ending was even fucking worse. No, Carrie was right. Uh, violence is not the answer, but look, if somebody dumps fucking pig's blood on you and you happen to be a psychic, just kill them, okay? That's what I'm going to say. I'm not inciting violence with these statements, but come on. Carrie was right. Who fucking doesn't watch that movie and go at the end? Good for her. Good for Carrie. Evil speak. In evil speak, when we get to Cooper Smith deciding to get the consecrated host, it's this building thing that really works so well. I mean, for for what, like like twenty minutes of the movie, he doesn't actually seem to understand what he needs because he goes through the first ritual and then he finally gets the dog. And you, as an audience member, you're kind of like, "Oh my god, he, he's he's going to use the dog. He's going to kill the dog." So you've got this false lead in with the death of the dog, which is even more upsetting when it it's. I keep saying it like it's some old grizzly thing it's a little tiny baby puppy it's a little cute baby puppy it's this cute little fuzzy thing and you i, I don't know it's like a like, here's a fucking stupid reference <laughs> it's like when you watch oz for the first time and they do that pseudo thing with uh we're gonna kill cyril he's cyril o'reilly is gonna get executed and they never do it and then two episodes later he gets the electric chair you do the fake dog death. You 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 make it seem like something really effective is going to happen, and then again we reestablish sympathy with Stanley Cooper Smith. Like, oh, he's not a dog killer. He's an all right guy, and we just go nowhere for so long. Just like my whole thing right here, like five minutes just wasted. <laughs> when we get to the ending and the the building of this. And it's also a building of Clint Howard's performance because he's been this kind of ineffectual character the entire movie, and he gets the consecrated blood. You have Clint Howard holding this goblet full of blood, and when he starts screaming Satan, you actually really believe it. It's just something about Clint Howard crying his eyes out going, Satan! Satan! Hey. 
it's something about him rocking back and forth with the dead puppy. I mean, I think that's really what hits me. And, um, you know, Clint Howard has said to this day that whenever he really needs to feel emotion and feel, you know, he needs to cry or be upset or angry on the set of a film, he just thinks about this scene. That he goes back and thinks about him holding that dead puppy doll and rocking back and forth. And it it is really effective. You don't even have to go into this half lit. This isn't one of those, I gotta smoke a joint movies. No, when he sits there on this, and it's really, it's like a Danzig video. It's really decadent. He's sitting on this massive cross, and it, it's a, a huge tomb for this dead Satanist played by uh, Richard Mull. And everything is decadent in the background. There's these bones. It's like the catacombs of Paris. It's very dark lit. It's beautiful. And he's just weeping, holding this dead dog. <laughs> it's it's probably the most righteous scene of the movie next to when they superimpose Richard Mull's face over Clint Howard's, which may be my favorite thing in this entire movie. I don't know. I kind of like the Satan head. Just as much as the Richard Mulhead. Well, I see that's what makes it perfect because you get the Richard Mulhead, and all of these are are practical effects. All of this was was actually shot and it was used. Uh, mirrors were used. It's a really tricky Harry Houdini sort of situation. You go from Clint Howard's body to Richard Mull's face, and then you've got that sweet, sweet Satan head. I mean, that's like a Venom record cover. That's that's awesome. <laughs> it looks great. But not only that, right, like, after all this, he's holding up the sword with a pentagram on it, and his hair, his toupee is blowing in the, the light and the wind, and you start getting this 2001 light show on the computer where it's just psychedelic fucking computer effects and, like, naked uh, demon souls floating in the air and all this crazy shit. And the music is building and building and building until we get to the uh, the church and he flies up from the fucking floor with his hair standing on end, holding a goddamn sword in front of a burning cross, and demon pigs shoot up, and just a shit house just goes fucking nuts. Decapitations, people being eaten by pigs, fire everywhere, Cooper Smith flying around on wires. It's fucking tremendous. It is as when people compare horror films, they uh, a lot of times will compare it to porn. Yeah, it's the money shot. This is all one giant money shot. The last 10 minutes of this film are tremendous. If this movie was Bukaki porn, because it's not like there's one person coming. It's just come everywhere, man. I mean, this is like a multiple jizz job sort of situation. Everyone's excited. And Graphic! It's, it's Graphic. very, yeah. <laughs> and some of the things are, are just... It, they're exquisite and they're exotic. When you read Nietzsche and you read about his idea of decadence, it is the beheadings that you are bestowed with how beautiful things are in evil speak. And it's like Peter Jackson style. You've just got these grisly fucking heads being cut off and then blood squirting from places they normally would never squirt for, from. And it's fantastic. And, and the music is really like a big part of this because you have that that choir like belting out the like the like the latin phrases of like you know the kind of the exorcist kind of vibe going and it's just i well, the first time i saw this movie i lost my shit because granted through most of it i'm kind of like all right this is a little bit of a buzzkill and it's just not delivering for me it's just not delivering 
and then you're gonna you're gonna finish it anyway because I mean that's what you did like with the '80s horror films. You're just like okay, I'm gonna watch the whole thing. I spent you know, it wasn't even it. like '80s horror films when it came to an era of renting a film. If you paid fucking $3 yeah, I paid my four dollars. I'm watching the whole fucking thing. This is not Netflix. I'm not gonna keep scrolling. I'm not gonna watch ten minutes. I paid. We're going. And then if you were really insulted by the movie, you just didn't rewind it. That was it. And this like. It pays off so much. I lost my fucking shit just going, what is even happening anymore? This is fucking tremendous. This is just nuts. Pigs eating entrails, fire everywhere. Clint Howard floating. You know what I really love about the the whole sequence when they introduce him uh, possessed by the demon at the end of the movie? He has his arms at this really weird stance and it, it looks really cool and it almost looks symbolic and it was really for the fact that they were trying to cover up the wires but <laughs> it works so well just everything in this but it makes you appreciate the entire build-up when you get to this point because there was a lot of appreciation detail he first finds the book and you've got that scene where he's trying to translate things and the the priest tells him or I keep bringing up the priest, but someone tells him, you know, you've been using the computer too long and you can't sit down here and use it anymore. And he's typing in statements how to how to do this black mass. He's trying to figure out through an old DOS program how to bring Satan forth onto the earth. And as things progress and you get to know his character, you start finding out this like to me, I thought was a unique sense of detail that he doesn't ever seem to feel safe unless he can question something. I mean, even when it comes down to him getting the pumpy, are you sure it's okay, I can have it? He has to say things two or three times, the character of Stanley Cooper Smith, played by Clint Howard. He just can't affirm. He can't get anything done. And then finally you've got the the pumpy being killed and this this great exposition of the demon coming forward and turning into him, and suddenly he can get things done. And I love just that very last ending bit where it just says he's, been catatonic for years and is staying in an asylum and everything's okay it opens things up to a great sequel but to me it gives almost an example of he never had control he was never able to do anything for himself and this is why all these bad things happened to him and i think you used a pretty apt reference earlier like the last 10 minutes of this movie is a metal album come to life this is like every like 80s metalheads dream come true of just the whole like the revenge fantasy they always had and especially the 80s it's all swords it's all fire it's all demonic crazy shit and it's really awesome now people's power fantasies are a lot more realistic and scary and not very fun to put in a film um but this revenge fantasy from the 80s is good old-fashioned satanic fun. I'm down you know, for it. The problem with that is I have to disagree with you. I think people's fantasies now make wonderful movies because we have American Psycho. And, I mean, look at the man who was president of our no, country. No, no, no. I'm talking about, like, weird fucking school shooting garbage. Oh, yeah. And then you have, like, weird furry fetishes. I guess that's kink shaming, but you know I'm what? I'm talking about, yeah, like, people's actual revenge fantasies. They ain't good anymore. They're just just like they're not like clever or fun no they want to act out the act them all out and uh it's usually some paramilitary goofy shit that is just like what are you doing well even aside from things like that right now a serbian film is is getting its grand big release in the united states from unearthed and i love unearthed i like steven byru i think the product I, i think he's a good director i think he's a good writer and i think he runs a pretty solid ship and a good company but again 
I mean, this movie's what, 10? It's it's over a decade old. Let's say it that way. This movie's over 10 years old, and people are still shocked and, and just fanaticizing over a Serbian film. It's not so much a revenge film. I know that there are a lot of uh, political essences and a lot of things about Serbia and Russia and, and blah, 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 all the stuff that involves the movie. When you look at what causes reaction, when you look at what makes people go, oh, wow, it's like a Serbian film and a and, uh, human centipede. Oh, they squished a baby. That's so awful. Ah, God, yeah, it's, it's just reactionary stuff, though. It has no meaning. It has no substance. It's just violence for the sake of it's violence. It's got no demon pigs. It has no swords. And it has no Clint Howard. You've got these all this stuff and, and all this shit shoved in your face. And none of it really connects until you get to this like final battle when it comes to evil speak. And it's just like reactionary shit. Like nothing really comes into play. And then, uh, well, uh, what am I supposed to care about? Is Stanley abused? Is his life that... Why is he being abused? Why is even like all the, the officers, all the people at the school, why are they so shitty to him? There's no story. There's no point. What you really have to get off to at this point is there's demon pigs. There's there's like five beheadings with a killer sword beheadings, not just beheadings. I mean, they're like with some holy metal D.O.S. Slow motion fucking sword play. I mean, it's like a Ronnie James Dio rainbow uh, heaven and hell Black Sabbath era thing. It's it's beautiful. That's what pays off when it comes to evil speak. And then you can kind of play off like, well. Early computers make you evil? Yeah, sure, whatever. No, beheadings. Evil pigs. They're great. <laughs> so, Evil Speak, um, again, it's one of the more entertaining films on this. It it has payoff. It has delivery. Um, uh, is this the part of the show where we start talking about? Yeah, I think this is where we talk about why it's on the list. And I think this one's pretty obvious. At the end, it gets pretty fucking gory and violent and very satanic. And that's a big no-no for the, the BBFC at that time period. I think my biggest statement, my biggest sentiment when it comes to Evil Speak is the fun that you have watching it. I mean, you have such a, a, a I've pointed it out, you've capitalized on it. It really is just like a really great metal record. It slowly builds up and then finally you get that killer solo and everyone's head gets cut off. Yeah, it's it's kind of great. This is the part of the show, though, where we read from the book The Art of the Nasty by Win Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris and just a little segment of why this movie was kind of on the list and where it stands now, basically. Evil Speak, recommended by the Church of Satan's Anton LaVey as essential viewing for would-be Satanists, this was released uncut on video in August of 1983. A cut version was later made available after it was banned. Re-released in 1987 by Apex Video with cuts totaling 3 minutes and 34 seconds before a special edition DVD was passed uncut by the BBFC in 2004. So it is available in the UK uncut on DVD. I believe 88 Films has one. I think um, Severin has one out. Um, I know that the American DVD of it is completely out of print. I yeah. threw away my case, which is a big fucking bummer because I think it's worth like $75 now. Yeah, that's the thing, man. You can't forget that anymore. You got to keep your slip covers. You got to keep everything. I Somebody's... just didn't care for a certain point. I just was like, whatever. I don't have room for all this shit, so I'm just going to stack them. And I look for um, the original PAL VHS version, as you can buy it on UK eBay or whatever for collectors. Uh, I could not find a recently sold one or one that's for sale or, or the price, but the one you're looking for is the Filmtown Video Space 
uh, PAL version of it. If you if you can track one down to buy, I think this one is pretty pricey. It's probably on a little bit of the higher end of things, just because. And the only reason I say that is because the Blu-rays um, are pretty pricey because a lot of them are out of print. The DVD is a little bit pricey because it's out of print. So I'm assuming this one is fairly rare on uh, PAL VHS as well. You know, I could the be problem completely wrong is, with that, though. The problem is Clint Howard is buying all of these up. Apparently, Clint... Why? Spread the love, Clint. Clint loves to go back and find older things pertaining to his career and buy them on eBay and uh, you know other bargaining websites. So if you want this, Clint Howard has it. Find him. Tell Clint Howard you want a copy of this movie. The 88 Films Edition is the one I'll vouch for. I enjoyed that. It's a, uh, a port of the old DVD. I think there's like one or two new features, but it's nice. It looks nice. And it's just one of those things that if you enjoyed this movie beforehand, it's it's better to watch it now. But if you've never seen Evil Speak before, oh my god, it's a hoot and a holler. It's really fun. I mean, out of all the things on this list, it's a really fun 80s horror film, especially one that because when you do the, the the party thing, when you like when people want to watch, hey, let's watch a horror film, and you're a horror film guy, which I've been my entire life of introduce me to something new I've never seen before. Because mostly all they've watched is, you know, Friday 13th bullshit and just standard horror fare. This is one you can pull out and go, you haven't seen this before. Because even as I remember in the 80s, this was not easy to find on VHS in America either. It was it was a fairly rare film altogether. And when they do see it, they will complain and then they will thank you because the ending is amazing. What's going on with this movie, man? They're just bullying this guy for a little while. Holy shit, did a pig just eat that guy? It will go from zero to 1,000 incredibly fast with evil speak. I'm surprised that, like, Joe Bob and Darcy haven't done something like this. I think they've been trying to get this one, but uh, the rights to it, I think, are a mess. Um, So if you can track down evil speak... Wait, it's on Tubi, isn't it? Uh, Well, I know that whatever it is, it's owned by WB, that this was an independent film. It cost about uh, $1.3 million to get this made. And as... I mean, it was introduced to... Like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles audiences. This was not widespread. This was not a million theaters. I mean, it made something like four hundred thousand dollars back in its first two or three days, which for this the style of product that's that's fairly impressive, especially for its era. After that, it was purchased by Warner Brothers and then put into you know it was a horror film in theaters. And it's kind of surprising, really, that Clint didn't get a bump from this. I mean, he did a lot, and he has. He continues to do so, but... I mean, I think his performance is really the the thing that carries evil speak. I, I love oh, yeah, Clint. yeah, if you didn't have Clint Howard, this movie wouldn't work as well as it does. Because uh, Clint Howard, much like Sissy Spacek, is what makes these characters work, because you believe the reality of this world that they're living in. Um, just a little bit about the, the, like the Carrie remake. One of the problems with it is Chloe Grace Moretz, I just don't buy her as being... Sure, abuse. I could buy her as being an abused child, but I don't I don't see her having the same problems as Sissy Spacek in high school because she is fairly attractive. I don't care how weird you are. You're still pretty fucking hot, and I don't see you having this many issues with everyone in your class. I don't see you being that much of an outcast, no matter what your upbringing is. But someone like Clint Howard, someone like Sissy Spacek, you can see them easily getting bullied in high school, very much so. See, I've not seen the Curie remake, so I, I don't have a it's lot. It's not to, good. 
Well, I mean, I don't just I don't have any comments or anything to say on on that. But when it comes down to Clint's performance, I, I think one of the really unique things about Evil Speak is he probably was one of the most established and uh, he probably had the most experience than most most everyone on set. I mean, Clint started filming and started his career as an actor when he was two years old. And from that point forward had been on set. He was pretty much raised on set and he, he might not be conventionally handsome, but we didn't even see him more as a villain or more as a monster or, or more as like even a Klaus Kinski well, he's a character. character actor. That's what he'll always be is just he'll come in with great characters, um, a recognizable face to a certain extent, to especially to like an uh, underground crowd. I mean, you've got guys like Klaus Kinski, and they just kept showing up and appearing in things. I, I just think Clint Howard has so much range, and you see something like this. I think there are some tear-jerk-worthy sequences. I think he really makes you feel, and I think what really pushes this movie and makes it excellent really is. I mean, it's Clint Howard. It's 100%. He carries it. Oh, yeah, it. you don't have a movie like Clint. And the next movie we get into, uh, it wouldn't really matter who starred in it. It could be Steven Dorff, Clint Well, no, Howard. it matters because it's got Udo Kier in it, and it's the one thing in this film that I'm interested in watching. And the oh, film man. is See, I even, expose. Well, that's the problem, I think. You you read it, you see, uh, you go to IMDb, you look at the back of the movie, you, you do whatever, and you see Udo Kier's in it. It's like four and a half minutes, five, and I don't care. <laughs> there's nothing in this goddamn movie and I you know the problem is if I had never well, seen it gives this. it a push I think because it's Udo and just his performance alone will give you a little bit of like okay I'm in for some like I don't agree. kinky and weird shit getting ready to happen what I, I I disagree with Udo's performance it's the voice actor that Udo Kears he's dubbed you can't I mean you can't fault Udo on that shit well that's what I think makes this so great is you have apparently According to the the, the writer, uh, the co-writer director of this movie, the voice actor attempted to have a semblance of Udo Kier's voice. He hung out with him for a while and tried to replicate it, and it's it, so far from true. It, it's bafflingly. <laughs> it's not hard to do Udo. All you have to do is this German voice. It's really not hard to do Udo Kier. Yeah, but when you watch this movie, it's Udo Kier, and it's like, hello. I'm Udo Kier, and I'm going to be doing the dialogue. Would you like to make some fuck with me? It, it, none of it is good. It, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like briefly about Expose, a.k.a. The House on Straw Hill, which is what it's more commonly known as. It's a movie about a writer who pretty much plagiarized a book and got a little bit popular off of it. The guy who wrote the original story kills himself. And we have a hand that rocks the cradle situation of his na his wife, his widow, wants to get her revenge. So she infiltrates Udo's life as he's trying to write this next novel. And she wants to torture and murder him. And then you have about 45 minutes of just fucking. No, no, boring no, Boring no, no. 70s fucking. That's not true. You have about 35.8 minutes of Linda Hayden masturbating, and then you have fucking. And I think what makes it even more awkward is is Udo Kier is wearing rubber gloves the entire time. And the I movie... found that to be a little bit interesting of like, but that is kind of like, 
it's kind of a false flag in this movie because he starts putting on the rubber gloves. It's like, okay, this guy's got some weird kink. How's this figuring in? Oh, it doesn't at all. It's just a thing we threw in. It's just a little, little scene. And then the rest of it's whatever. That's my problem with the entire thing is even the movie begins with that. He puts on these latex white nitrile sort of uh, rubber gloves and then starts fucking somebody. And the, the whole movie, every time that there is a scene of intimacy, he puts on these rubber gloves and it's like, well, what's this going to play into it? Is he some weird fucking sick I'm latex freak? It's just his... It's like a, a symbol of his lack of intimacy that even sex for him is something that can be considered very medical and he doesn't want to get dirty or touched by like, you know, fluids or something. And he's just so I think it's trying to inform his character, but it just does a really piss poor job. I, I like that and I like where you're going with this, but um, I'm going to pop the, the balloon here and ruin it for everyone. Everyone involved, the director, writer. Just seemed cool. Just seemed like a thing to do. Literally right before they started shooting, they said, hey, put on these rubber gloves. Let's do this. There is no meaning to it whatsoever. There's nothing that goes down to the, the script. There's no psychosexual, weird, deeper meaning. It was a visual. And that is where my problems with this movie begin. Everything is... And this is great. I, I love it. I just recently did this whole big thing about uh, Paul Schrader's film, pa uh, Patty Hearst. Not really a good movie. It misses most of the point. It's not great when it comes to storytelling, but goddamn, it's use of light. It's visually stunning. It looks fantastic. Trauma, a.k.a. Expose, a.k.a. House on Straw Hill. It's beautiful. It looks really, really great. That's, I do enjoy that's the Euro trash look of it all. It's shot well. The... Um... The fields, they should have uh, like used the fields a little bit more, I think. But overall, just the... Um... The one scene they use the fields majorly in isn't really effective. You, you've you got this uh, pseudo-Camille Keaton rape sequence, and then it turns into, like, a, I don't know, like Alejandro Hodorowski El Topo, who, who's the bad guy now sort of thing. And it, there's so many questions asked. We were, we were saying with Evil Speak that I felt... We were saying, I said with evil speak that uh, it almost seems like there were too many cooks in the kitchen, despite only being two writers. Expose, holy shit! I nothing. Makes I don't think it. there's any cooks <laughs> in the kitchen. I think somebody just put it like a trisket on a plate with a fucking piece of Swiss cheese and said, "Done." Not even that. They've just left a pot boiling, and they didn't even put like the pasta, or the noodles, nothing in. It's just been a pot boiling for like an hour, forty minutes, and then all of a sudden it ends. I don't. I, I don't even know how the movie really ends at this point, and she chases after him with a gun. But what happens after that? Like, what is there a I thing? Think she gets shot, and then he's left by himself in I, isolation. And it's not the worst part. As you go through this experience, you watch the movie. It's not visually bad. Like, and that's where my comparison to things like Patty Hearst and what I was referencing with Evil Speak. It looks really, really good. It's it's an attractive movie. You've got a decadent. DP, you've got somebody that really understands light, you've got somebody that really understands emotion, but then the way the movie is cut and edited together, it's like, was well, it a fuck film? Is this a sexy horror movie or a horror movie with sex? Or It's a sex what? movie. That's what I got. It just it seemed like they were way more interested. And this is 75. This is, like especially in Europe, a era that's really pre- mainstream porno uh, like relegated to you know just like stag films that were traded and stuff this is like an excuse to go see something incredibly sexy at the theater and even the the 
sex is not very sexy in itself. And there's just too much of it. It just keeps going on and on. And the I think the story gets lost in all of the sex because after a certain point, it's just like, all right, more fucking, more masturbating. All right, you want to fuck him, but you don't want her to fuck. What the fuck ever? episode of Death by DVD to bring you Keith David or David Keith. Chicago DEA agent John Hatcher returns from Columbia where drug dealers killed his partner Chico and John killed the drug dealers in return. As a result of Chico's death and years of dead-end work, John retires and heads to his family's hometown of Lincoln Heights in suburban Chicago. He visits the local school to meet his old friend and former U.S. Army buddy, Max Keller, who works there as a football coach and physical education teacher. Who plays Max Keller? Is it David Keith? Or is it Keith David? Think about it. It's Keith David! Thanks for playing Keith David or David Keith. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. This is one of the first times I can ever say that a cut, edited version of the movie, a censored version of the movie, might actually be more palatable. That the uncut version of this, and and this is really where the fault comes into play, especially being released by a company like Severin. You're like, okay, this is uncut, so it's going to be graphic and grisly, and I'm going to get into something really fantastic. Nope, all those masturbation scenes where we say that, and it makes it sound like it's pornographic. It's you've got breasts. You've got Linda. It's seventies Euro horror, like sort of like a Jess Franco film, although with a lot of less bush. I mean, you've got Linda Hayden who stars in Blood on Satan's Claw. You might know her mildly from some uh, Hammer esque, but never actually Hammer early Euro trash, uh, long winded movies. I like Blood on Satan's Claw, but God, I'll be the first to admit nothing happens at all at, ever in that movie. You watch it the entire time, and nothing happens. Very similar to this. Her masturbation sequences, it's not its not filthy, it's not dirty, it's obviously simulated, but when it comes to Udo Kier, you've got something kind of unique of, he drops his pants, he doesn't ever expose himself, it's not like you see cock, it's not like there's anything absolutely vulgar when it comes down to uh, pornographic sequences, but it's always like this doggy-style, weird camera angle of, He's got to have control. He's going to be fucking them. He's going to be doing it from this angle. He's got to do it this way. And none of it plays off. None none of it. And it like, again, going back to evil speak, it's like all these different directions are introduced to you. You've got. There's well, a, so I, I think what you're saying is there's so many dots 
in the film and none of the dots are connecting. It's just dot after dot after dot until we get a few scenes of some violence. It's not even particularly graphic. It's, well, it's I mean, the same some... as his story. I mean, his entire story that he is dictating, and that's one of the points of the movie, is that he's the writer and Linda's character, who is also named Linda, is is typing it for him. And he consistently will yell, point, 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 point. And that's, you know, a period. It's where he's yelling to stop. And as the movie draws and goes forward and forward and forward and nothing actually happens, it seems like they're trying to do the same thing, like dot, 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 dot. That it's these quiet moments, and that's what the sex scenes are kind of supposed to be, like dot, 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 this lingering, like, <laughs> this is a weird reference, but like a, a an Anne Rice sort of thing of like, here's a vampire story. And then 48 pages of people fucking. And it's filler. I mean, I don't know what else to say outside of it. It's, it's just filler because there's no story. There's no point. There's there's nothing. I think you have to look back at the time period as well, as I was talking about earlier. It's There was a need for sexualized product on the market, and I think that's what, what they were really trying to fill. They weren't trying to fill an excellent story. I think they had a base idea. And... Like, I'd say 20 years later in the 90s, Shannon Tweed would have been in this movie. It's one of those. It's like a Skinamax bland thriller with not much happens in the movie. And it does have a little bit of blood. The 70s, you know, melted crayon blood in a couple of scenes. But to get to those scenes, you have to get through so much non-sexy fucking and like mind games that these lovers are playing on each other. It's just like, I don't, I've seen a thousand of these movies at this point, And this one from 1975, it may be a granddaddy of them all, but I just, I don't care. I've seen so many of these things on HBO and on home video back, like in the nineties that it's just like, all right. Tits. So essentially it is the, what's the name of that movie by Paul Verhoeven? With Gina Gershon. Basic Instinct. No, Gina Gershon and uh, Saved by the Bell. Showgirls? Showgirls. So basically you're saying this is the exploitation version of Showgirls. I would say more of Basic Instinct, though, because it's it's a similar movie to Basic Instinct, as in the, the core idea is not the story we're telling as much as it is to over-sexualize a character. Because, I mean, Basic Instinct does have a story to it. But overall, that's not why people saw the movie. They saw the movie to see Sharon Stone be sexy and like make a name for herself and do the famous scene and things like that. And just overall, the story gets lost on that. If you hear anybody talk about Basic Instinct at this point in history, do you, does anyone ever describe what the fuck the movie's about? Or they just talk pussy. about Sharon Stone? It's just pussy. That's all you hear is that pussy yeah. scene. That's it. That's it. There's and nothing it's just, else. It's a similar movie to like that's a like analogous to this movie where it's just. We're not particularly interested in the story we're telling. We're more interested in exploiting the sexual nature of the story we're telling, which is fine, but it's just nothing too sexy about it and nothing too violent about it. So it's just so middling and in the road in the middle of the road that I just I don't care. I mean, there's just weird aspects and 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 plot devices that never seem to be used. Like toward the beginning of this movie, you've got Udo Kier gets into the situation with two ruffians, I guess you could say, and he knows karate. Like, you've got the sequence of Udo Kier kicking ass very, very briefly, but what does that go to? Some weird, uh, and I don't mean to say this uh, poorly, but an effeminate writer who is, is staying at this via alone writing. He, he is dedicating himself to just doing this. He, he can do karate. What What is this character? <laughs> what are we trying to represent? What are we trying to show with the story? 
And I, I think it's something, maybe a linear aspect that is a problem and a fault with this, that you, you want to relate to a character. And we were discussing with Evil Speak, you reflectively look at the story and you try and relate and see something from it. 20 years from when I first saw Evil Speak, I can still do that. I can still have a reflective uh, enjoyment or look at the movie. Trauma, expose, House on Straw Hill. Every time I look at it, I just continuously keep finding faults and like, well, what the fuck? None of <laughs> Why would you do this? Why can he do Kung Fu? And then none of this plays off later. All right. And even those faults, whereas in a lot of movies um, from these time periods, a lot of those faults can be interesting or dynamic or funny at times. And something even like Miami Connection, which is a complete disaster of a film is really funny at times and it's very not self-aware of itself. And there's something to be entertained by in that. And house on straw Hill is so mediocrely shot, plotted, mediocrely acted even. And just, it's just that there's nothing, there's nothing to laugh at. There's nothing to have joy with. There's nothing to like think is sexy or erotic or interesting. It's just like, but then again, uh, did anybody think who was making this movie it would have a shelf life so long after 1975? Or did they just release it at theaters to make a quick um, erotic film buck and cash in and just move on to the next thing? Because that's what it feels like to me. And just the fact that it's on the video nasties list has kept it alive in the public eye. But if it wasn't on this list, I don't think anybody would be talking about this movie at this point. I think it would be lost to time. Interesting enough, on that subject, uh, director and co-writer James Keenelm Clark was a really big fan of a uh, American International Pictures, and he had come to the United States with the BBC and had shot some work for um, the American International Pictures, and that's where the Norfolk International title came from for this movie and his production company, that it was a pure inspiration of trying to... to continue what like uh, American international was doing. And I, I don't think at any point in their span of existing, this was a mission statement, but American international produced some of the greatest uh, exploitation films of, of, of our time, you know, stuff that we talk about on the show, things that are relished and loved by, by everyone. And then you've got pre video nasties, 1976, somebody trying to replicate that, and I, I don't mean this offensively, but I think this is really like the greatest British translation of something like American International that they took all the exploitation. They took all the, the, the aspects of it. They took all the right things, but it is very, very British and it is very long and it's very drawn out and it doesn't go anywhere. It just every angle and every time you want the movie to go somewhere, like you've got the really great sequence. And I mean, I. I hate saying it that way, but you've got the rape scene and it's something that's uh, reminiscent of Camille Keaton. It's somewhat like day of the woman and uh, Linda Hayden is in this, this field and the straw field, apparently this movie's named after. And she, uh, you've got this shot of her on the ground and there's two people over her. Then someone's fucking her. Someone's raping her. Someone's forcing themselves on her and she shoots them. And it's these like, reminiscent of something that Udo Kier had done previously before this Andy Warhol's work. And it's like everything in this movie, everything visually in this movie, everything is capitalizing off something else. It is a sexy horror film that is trying to make money off uh, exploitation, sexy horror film, genre lawn, Joe D'Amato, uh, guys like that. 
And then you've got the involvement of someone like Udo Kier. It's like, well, we're also artistic. We've got him, so, you know, let's just do whatever. No one's going to question it. And and what you had said uh, previous to, to my ranting, I think, is really apt. If this wasn't a nasty, no one would have cared. It's like Axe. It really is like Axe, Lisa, Lisa. If this was not a video nasty, who the fuck would have wanted to have seen it? It is a very, very boring display of, of like, we're artists, and nobody's bad. It's it's not bad. That's the hard part, talking about it. The, um, the BBFC actually stated it was a horrible juxtaposition of sex and violence. Ah, um, well, there that answered my next question, because that's when we do the uh, why was this banned. The only thing I could think of was sex mix, sex mixed with death because it has a lot of sex and it has a little blood in it. And that was a big no, no for the BBFC and the uncut version. That's all it is. It's there's just fucking sequences after fucking sequences with Udo Kier. And then you've got Linda masturbating and it just it's so much. It's even worse than a Skinamax movie. I mean, you can go through like a Jamie Gillis fuck him up the ass porn and still have a plot. This is just. She's masturbating again, and it's not sexy. It's not like you can even, like, if you were 13 years old trying to jerk off to this late at night, you would just get bored. Like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> there's Don't know what to do. Hey, there's somebody who looks like my mom in this movie. Click. <laughs> just jerk off to George Lopez at that point. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's refer back to our text, uh, The Art of the Nasty, and we'll hear a little bit about Expose. The only British film to make the nasties list, it was granted an X certificate in November of 1975 with minor cuts. Despite several re-release, re-releases since, to date, Intervision's tape remains the best way of seeing the film intact. Two prints were issued by the company, one with the on-screen title Expose, the other as House on Straw Hill. And if you're looking for the PAL VHS versions of these, um, again, couldn't find one that has recently sold or is for sale currently, but the Intervision is the uh, the label that people are always searching for. Um, I'm assuming it's probably not very expensive unless it's incredibly fucking rare, that, and I don't realize it. Um, because it's just, as we've been saying, we're like we don't purposely sit here and dump on movies like hardcore over and over again. And this one was just, it was a slog to get through for me. I just sat there and watched it and just went, God damn it. I got to reconsider my career choices. Cause this is just like, I don't know anybody who can sit and really like, I enjoyed sitting through this. I want to watch it again. Why do you want to watch it again? I mean, there are people there's, um, there's the Steven throwers out there who really get into Jess Franco movies and find a lot of like interesting aspects to pick apart in movies like this. I just don't see it in this one. I don't see what you can pick it through and like talk about artfully like, Oh, well this scene is very interesting. It's just like, there's just nothing in it. You know, that was uh, sort of my trepidation doing this video. Nasty is it, when I began research, when I started looking up this movie, everyone loves it. E- every article, everything. Because it's Euro centric, like, like, partial porn shit I, I even and I'm said just this to you I mean I said this jokingly before the show but holy shit I'm a genre lawn fan and this is fucking too much for me it, it just doesn't go anywhere and that's the biggest problem I can get behind some esoteric things I can really enjoy stuff like the lighthouse for example there's not a lot that is given to you and shown linear or story-wise when it comes to that movie uh, trauma expose the house on straw hill 
it's very similar. You get this brief glimpse and this idea of this writer, uh, and he's moving to, uh, he's moving to be alone, to get his job done, to to fully do what he has never done before. And as you cut away and start revealing more and more of the story, you get this exposition of of just bullshit, just more useless filler and 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 needless sex that i mean if it was a porn it would be a porn that would be fine it would be fitting for whatever it's doing but is it a sex film is it a sexy horror film is it a horror film with sex i i don't know i i can't find any middle ground to sit and get behind this and it it's not like i and just as you aptly have been pushing it's not a matter of bitching i we don't like this movie I do. I think it's shot really well. I think it looks really good. I love Udo Kier. I think the soundtrack is really haunting. I love the restoration that, uh, you know, Severin has put together. And uh, Inner Vision lives to this day because of David Gregory, because of Severin. So these movies get to exist and get to have a, a second life because of him. For better or worse, I mean, we've discussed, I keep bringing up Axe and Lisa Lisa, but we've got, got Joe Diamato movies, Jess Franco movies, so much on this list. We did uh, Beast in Heat. That movie's about nothing. There, <laughs> there is so nothing yes, to... Yes, but Beast in Heat, there's a certain amount of morose, yes, but also like comedic effect that that movie can have. Because, yes, it's a Nazi uh, exploitation film, but it has some, like, really goofball bullshit in it well, as well. Unfortunately, it works almost on like a... I can't think of his name. What's Meathead's dad's name? It works almost like a Carl Reiner level of, of humor. It, it's really awkward and it's not for its point, but it's in your face enough that you can watch something like Beast in Heat and you, you weirdly hate the Nazis even more. Like, you can see the exploitation that was used. You You can see why it's so offensive and why it is uh, garnished and shown to people the way it is. And then you have expose and it's like, <laughs> I don't know, there's some masturbation. <laughs> there's fucking nothing. I, I just have such a struggle with this. It's just another sex film for me. And I can't see it as more than that. And I'm just not into it. I don't like vinegar syndrome does a, a fair amount of um, porn restoration. And I'm just, I'm not into that either. Cause I just, I don't, I don't get down for like old school porn because of plot and any of that stuff. It's just, it's not my thing, and this is not my thing either. I've just never been able to get into. But then again, like even like a lot of the American stuff from the seventies that that's a, a lot of the adult material, the single X rated stuff, like um like fairy tale, like a lot of the um like you know Charles Band stuff that he was involved in the seventies. Just like this doesn't do anything for me. It's just kind of overall boring i mean you even have like nine lives of a wet pussy uh the early work of wes craven i just don't have an interest for it uh personally for me on the same sentiment as you i i own one porn in my entire collection and uh, right now i own i don't have a, a, a huge collection i mean you've got people out there with with fucking like a million movies i've got like a thousand films in my collection give give or take maybe maybe around 900 to a thousand I had to restart. I move around a lot, so for me, I don't I don't collect because I need to have it. I collect things that I'm gonna watch more than three times, or if the power goes out, that wouldn't even help. If uh, internet goes out, then I can still watch a film or enjoy myself with it. Uh, I own one 
porn. I, I have one, and it is a Roger Watkins film, and it's one of those things, like, if you could... Uh, Vinegar Syndrome is doing this now, or um, the American Genre Film Archive is doing this right now. Cutting out the porn from the movies, I would love to watch it. I I, I bought this movie well, 100%. Well, see, for me, like, as you're discussing this, like, for me... Porn is something I use to masturbate with, and that's the only use I have for it. All the other stuff around it, even if it's like artfully done in the 70s and has story, I'm just not that interested in it. Like Debbie's Does Dallas, I don't care about all the surrounding bullshit and the comedy and all that. It's just like I'm, I'm not into it. And as far as the porn aspect of it goes, I have a hard time finding anything erotic that's not like current day or at least a period I lived in 70s porn is not erotic to me whatsoever. It's just like, like I said earlier, it's just like, Hey, there's somebody who looks like my mom used to. And just like, I don't find like seventies women, someone who's now in her seventies. I don't want to watch her fuck when she was like 25. It's just, I don't know. It's just not something I'm into. Yeah. My whole point was I only bought that movie because it had a, a feature if you hit the remote six times down, you could watch Last House on Dead End Street. Yeah, that's the only reason I own that film. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's just the way I feel about it. I know a lot of other people are into like classic erotica. It's just, it's just not my thing personally. It's, I'm not picking on you or anything like that. If you're into it and you find value in like the story sections and all that stuff, that, that's all well and good for you. It's just not something I choose to spend my time with. But I think, again, I'm like, a 1980s trash movie guy. I like watching just shitty garbage. That's what I'm into. I think that is possibly the biggest issue when it comes to something like trauma, a.k.a. expose. God damn, I'm tired of saying this. A.k.a. House on Straw Hill. You're, you're just left questioning, even when you get to the end of the movie, well, is this a softcore porn, or, or what is this? And... Really, it it's the only example I think I can say off the top of my head. The cut version is better. And really, it's because 20 minutes of masturbation was taken out. Masturbation that does nothing for the story. In fact, everything, when it comes down to trauma, is masturbatorial. The entire movie is just an exercise of capitalizing off of a Warhol star, sex films, and uh, horror at the time period. The video nasties hadn't begun to boom, but people like Argento were really selling sensualization, and then you had the people that were copping off of that. I mean, what, 1975, 1974, Giallo was pretty much dead, so Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato, Lucio Fulci, they were beginning to feed upon the corpse of, of sex films, and you really, you, you got some hardcore porns mixed in with it. Exposés just it's bland and every version every extent of what it is is just bland i mean you have what the bbfc can say that it is some traumatic mix of sex and violence and it's really not it well the the trauma comes from having to sit through it not so much of what's in the actual film itself i mean and honestly masturbation and the word could be sensual but when you watch this, no, not... <laughs> you even managed to fuck up some hot chick fingering themselves. Nothing plays off. There is no sensuality. There is no... Man, I can whack it to this. So, uh, in total, we've got one of the greatest films on the list of video nasties that you could sit down and you could enjoy. And then we've got something that 
I don't know, just pass it over. If you're a completist, by all means, find it, watch it, enjoy it, see it now, don't forget it. But god damn it, there is not much to offer when it comes down to this film. Udo Kier is very handsome. He is young. That's cool. I mean, this is coming, I think, right out of uh, Warhol. So, I mean, he is at the top of his game, I guess one could say. Not a lot to offer. Trauma, 1976. Evil Speak, 1981. This is the Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. I, Alexander Nash. I was going to ask you a question. I don't remember what it was, but how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Hello. There's a baby yelling. Our future co-host. Good night. Have a pleasant tomorrow. We'll be back next week. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. On the next episode. Alexander Nash is an average 1950s teenager living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with his parents, high school, girls, and his best friend Potsy Phil most of his time. That is, when he's not seeking guidance from the local almost superhuman greaser, the Hank. Hey, you kids want to smoke some pot? Potsy fixes Alexander Nash up with Mary Lou Milligan, a girl with a reputation around town. Nash doesn't get far with her, but leads the Hank and others to believe that he did. Find out what happens on the next episode of Death by DVD. I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience.